Well, thank you, Brother Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you these uh, sessions on uh, apologetics. And our topic tonight is the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. Is faith in Christ necessary for people to be saved? That is, do they need to hear the gospel, know of Christ, consciously, knowledgeably uh, believe in Christ who lived, died, rose again for their salvation? Do they need to know that gospel message to be saved? That's the question before us this evening. It is a, uh, a very important question for us uh, within conservative evangelicalism because there are other evangelicals, at least professing evangelicals, uh, who have come to the conclusion that people can be saved apart from the knowledge of Christ and conscious belief in Christ. And these people teach in our uh, evangelical seminaries, not Southern Baptist ones, we hope, but uh, across the nation in different seminaries of high reputation, you'd find some of these spokespersons of this view, sometimes called inclusivism, that though, though the only way of salvation is through Christ, uh, so they would agree with everything that was said this morning, at least in principle. Uh, they have different views of the atonement and the like, so there may be some disagreements. But nonetheless, in principle, they, they agree that Christ is the only Savior, but they would disagree that people must hear the gospel of Christ to be saved. And honestly, my friends, this is a, uh, a view that is tempting for many of us Christian people to... to uh, be inclined toward, because it sounds gentler, softer, kinder, doesn't it? Uh, that that uh, people out there who have never heard of Christ have hope that there is saving revelation available for them to be saved. Missionaries don't have to get to them in order for them to be saved. They don't have to hear the gospel because there is already saving revelation present. And it sounds a kinder, gentler understanding of the grace of God given through the gospel that people have access to this saving revelation already because the alternative is a very sobering alternative. How many people are there in the world today who have never heard of Jesus? They, they don't know the gospel. They have no access to gospel witness within their culture. And the answer is about one-fourth of the world's population. You know, close to two billion people have never heard of Christ, never heard of the gospel, and if the exclusivist view is true that I'm arguing for this evening, those people are without hope. The only hope they have is to know of Christ and to believe in Christ to be saved, hence the necessity of missions. I mean, you realize how absolutely crucial the mission's mandate is to go to the world and make people aware of who Jesus is and what he has done and bring to them the gospel because apart from that message, that gospel message, they have no hope. They cannot be saved. So now here comes along this view that says, but wait a minute, there is saving revelation already there. No, they don't know of Christ, but they know of the God of creation. They know of, uh, of God's saving kindness as even revealed in some of their religious practices. So they could be a faithful Buddhist, a faithful uh, uh, um, pra practicer of, of Islam, uh, a, a faithful uh, Hindu. And because they are endeavoring to do what they do in faith with sincerity, God will look at that and will save them. So is this a, a possible view according to the Bible? 
that people can be saved by their sincere belief in the God of creation and their sincere practice of other religions that they can be saved. Many Christian people are drawn to this because it sounds softer, kinder. But the question is, is it true? And can't you see that if it is not true, that this presentation of inclusivism is anything but softer and kinder, it is malicious. Do you see why? Because if it is not true that people can be saved apart from knowledge of the gospel, and yet they present this view that people can be saved apart from knowledge of the gospel, well, what that view does is diminish the necessity of missions. Do you see that? Oh my goodness, mom and apple pie are awfully powerful, are they not? If you get my point. To hold people home and not go to places that are very difficult to go to. And to, to have this notion that, oh, well, they're just fine already. They already have access to saving revelation. It will diminish the sense of urgency and the necessity of the mission's mandate. So, my friends, if it is not true that people can be saved apart from knowledge of, the, of, of Christ, conscious knowledge of Christ and belief in Christ, if that is not true, then this message from inclusivists is a malicious message because it undercuts the only means by which people can be saved, namely, hearing the gospel of Christ, believing in Christ, and being saved. So this is a very important question for us to, to consider. Is faith in Christ necessary for people to be saved? Do they need to know of Christ, hear of Christ, understand who Christ was, his death and resurrection, and believe in Christ to be saved? Well, let's consider with, uh, together some of the biblical and theological basis for believing, embracing, and defending that faith in Christ is necessary to be saved. And here, let's start with Jesus' own teaching that we read in uh, a few places in, uh, in the New Testament. Jesus' own teaching, which if we just pay attention to what he says, it looks pretty clear that in fact people do need to hear the gospel of Christ to be saved. Let's start with the most famous verse in the Bible. Uh, in, in all likelihood, this would be the case. John three sixteen and following. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, you see it now? Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, it's implicit right there in verse 16 that people have to believe in Christ to be saved. There's no indication here that there's a way of escaping perishing, that they may not perish but have everlasting life. There's no indication in verse 16 that this can come in any other way than through believing in Christ. Rather, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Keep reading with me, verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but the one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So indeed, what makes the difference between whether you are acceptable to God and receive eternal life, and whether you perish and are judged and perished is whether or not you believe. Pretty clear from this text. Look also at the end of John's gospel, chapter 20, as John summarizes 
the purpose of this gospel that he has given. Beginning with the words of Jesus in verse 27. This was Jesus to Thomas that we talked about briefly this morning. Doubting Thomas, who doubted that Jesus was alive from the dead, and so Jesus appeared and showed Thomas himself. So pick up with me at John 20, verse 27. Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. So his point is that I will not continue appearing to every successive generation of people, but they, they will not see me as you have seen me, Thomas, but your, your testimony will give them confidence that they can believe the truth on the basis of your eyewitness testimony. Though they have not seen themselves, blessed are those who believe. But again, Jesus' point is that people are saved as they believe. And now look at John's summary statement in verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I mean, honestly, if you ask the question of the Gospel of John, is there any other means by which you may be saved other than faith in Christ? And the answer is clear, no. Belief in Christ is necessary. This is the whole point of the Gospel going forward, so people can know what they need to know to believe the truth of Christ and be saved. So John is very clear, the Gospel of John is very clear that people must believe in Christ to be saved. Look at a second passage from Jesus. This in, in the, at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24. Jesus meets with his disciples and has some parting words with them before he ascends to heaven. Look with me at verses 44 to 49. 44 to 49. Luke 24, verse 44. Now Jesus said to his disciples, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he ends indicating the Spirit's going to come upon you, and of course that Spirit will propel you to take the message of the gospel to the nations. Okay, now in particular, look with me at verse 47. Let me read it again. Verse 47 uh, when you unpack what is in this verse, it's very clear that Jesus understands people must know of Christ, believe in Christ to be saved. Verse 47, again, Jesus says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, let me ask you a series of questions, all right, based upon this verse. Question number one, 
according to verse 47, what is the current state of those across the nations of the world? How, how, how does this verse describe them? How does Jesus describe them? What is their current state? Answer, they are unforgiven, right? They are unforgiven. That is, they're not saved. That repentance for forgiveness of sins, well, that indicates they don't have forgiveness yet, all right? So their current state is they are unforgiven. Question number two, what do they need to do to be forgiven? They need to repent, right? That repentance for forgiveness of sins, all right? So their current state is they are unforgiven. They need to repent, but they haven't repented yet. So question number three is, what would lead them to repentance? What is necessary for them to repent? That repentance for forgiveness of sins be proclaimed. There has to be a proclamation that would lead them to repent that would result in their being forgiven or saved, all right? Question number four, what is the content of the proclamation? What is the content of the proclamation? Well, it isn't spelled out for us in detail, but the hint of it is there in that verse, right? That, they, that this be proclaimed in my name, right? So in the name of Christ, it indicates this is a Christological content. And if you, if you look at what that would be, just look at the previous verse. I'm sure Jesus had this in mind. The previous verse, verse 46. Uh, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead, the third day. In other words, the death and resurrection of Christ is the content of this message that has to be proclaimed. The Christological core is summed up in this one who came to die for our sins and rose for our justification. So indeed, the, the Christ who died and rose is the content of saving faith. Okay, one more question. Actually, one and a half. There's kind of a, an add-on to this last question. To whom does this apply? That they are currently unforgiven. They, need, they, they, they must repent in order to be forgiven. They need a proclamation to repent to be forgiven. That proclamation has to be of Christ in his death and resurrection. To whom does this apply? The nations, all nations. So in other words, Jesus does not have the mindset that when you go out there to the nations of the world, what you are going to find is a whole bunch of saved people who in fact aren't Christians yet, but they're forgiven. They, they, they've been saved from their sin. That's what you're going to find when you go out there to the nations of the world. In fact, Clark Pinnock had a name for these people. He called them saved pagans. I mean, if that isn't a contradiction, I don't know what is, but saved pagans. Because they, they're pagans, they haven't heard of Christ, they haven't become Christians, but they are nonetheless saved. Well, I asked Clark Pinnock one time, I came up to him at ETS one time, and I said, I said, Dr. Pinnock, how is it that you can talk about this category of saved pagans when in fact Jesus indicates when you go to the nations, what you will find out there is everybody in those nations are unforgiven. And what they need is a proclamation of the gospel to be saved from their sin. And he had no response to that, except he said, well, that's just one passage. I was pointing him to this text. And he said, there are others. Well, I know there are others. And he mistakes what they mean. I've read his books carefully on this. So the fact of the matter is Jesus understands the message has to go out to the nations because the nations out there are characterized by unforgiveness. They must repent to be forgiven. They need a proclamation to repent, to be forgiven. That proclamation needs to be of Christ, 
And, and then and only then can they be saved. Now, one more add-on to the, to the fifth question, and it is this. Notice the last phrase of the verse. Beginning from Jerusalem. So get this, my friends, that even Jerusalem, this place where they have not only general revelation, the revelation of God in creation, they have Torah. They have the Old Testament scriptures. But if those Jews do not know Christ, no matter how much revelation they have of God, they are not saved. I mean, isn't this what Paul proclaims in Romans 1? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul does not have the mindset that because they're Jews, they're okay. They have revelation from God. They, they ought to be saved people. Oh, no, unless they know the revelation of Christ, they are not saved. So, indeed, this proclamation has to go out to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? So, everyone must hear the gospel to be saved. Finally, from Jesus in the book of Acts, as he talks to the apostle Paul, actually Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul. Look with me at Acts 26. Acts 26, verses 15 to 18. Saul has been confronted by Christ, and we pick up as Christ is speaking to him. Uh, Paul says in verse 15, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, the Lord Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to things which... I, to <coughs> excuse me. In which I, I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Gentiles, the, the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified. Here it comes. By faith in me. So there you have it. Why, why is Paul called to be this apostle to the Gentiles? I mean, the, the, the Jewish people have already had witness take place in Jerusalem and Samaria and so on, Judea. But now Paul is called as the first of the apostles to the Gentiles, the missionary force to go out to the Gentile nations of the world. Why, what, what is it they need, those Gentile nations? Well, what it is, according to Christ, is they, they, they need a message by which they will turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, by which they receive forgiveness of sins. And what is the content of that message? Those who receive those things by being sanctified, set apart by their faith in me. So must people hear of Christ? Must they know of the gospel of Christ to be saved? Yes, indeed. Hence, Paul is sent for that purpose. I mean, what's the point of sending him out if they can already be saved another way? If there is some saving revelation already present. But the point is this, he goes out to bring them this message by which they believe in Christ and then are saved. Well, that transitions to Paul's understanding of this. Look with me at a few passages from the Apostle Paul. First in Romans 1 that I alluded to just a moment ago. 
in verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And really, this is the thesis of the book of Romans is, is contained in these two verses. Verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So here Paul's point is that this gospel itself has the power in it. This gospel that Paul understands is unpacked for us than in the following chapters in the book of Romans. He, he, uh, you know, he elaborates on what this gospel is when he talks about the fact that we are sinners and we deserve the condemnation of God. But God in Christ ha has sent his son to come and bear our sin and to die a death that pays the penalty of our sins so that by faith we can be justified apart from works of the law. We are saved by faith and by faith alone. So that gospel is, is Romans 2, 3, 4, and 5, right? As Paul unpacks what that gospel is. So that gospel which has everything to do with Christ. It has everything to do with his propitiatory death. Everything to do with his being the satisfaction for uh, for the wrath of God against our sin. That gospel is, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And obviously, he means believes the gospel. Not just belief in anything, but believes that gospel. For, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what he means by that is how we may be righteous before God. The righteousness of God is revealed how we may be righteous, namely, by faith in Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, is credited to us. That's the gospel message. So here Paul makes it very clear that this good news, this gospel is the power of God for salvation, but that gospel has to be known and believed for people to be saved. Uh, also in Romans 3, as we talked about this just uh, a moment ago, Romans 3 also indicates that people must believe in this gospel message to be saved. So look with me first at verse 9 where he summarizes all of us are under sin. Romans 3 verse 9, What then, are we Jews better than they Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So Paul understands all of us, Jew and Greek alike, because of our sin and the sin of Adam, that's Romans 5, the sin of Adam that comes to all of us and our sin that carries out what, what Adam brought to us, we all before God are deserving of his judgment. We, we all are sinners and are condemned in our sin. But now, here comes the good news. Uh, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul's point there is the law simply exposes the sin of our hearts. It is not a saving message. Now, if we kept the law completely, we would be righteous before God. But the problem is none of us does. None of us can keep the law. 
And hence that law comes to us not as a saving message, but a condemning message. We stand under the condemnation of the law. You might remember in Romans 7, Paul speaks of the the law saying, you shall not covet. And what happens when you read those words, you shall not covet? It exposes in your heart coveting of every kind, says Paul. So that law cannot save us, that law judges us. But now apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is how we can be righteous before him is manifested not by the law, but by this. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see it? So once again, what is the remedy for our sin and our condemnation before God? Faith in Christ is necessary. And as you read down through this passage, you realize how, how uh, Paul stresses the importance of faith. So verse 22, the righteousness of God uh, is Uh, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. There it is again. And then down in verse 25, whom God displayed, Christ, whom God displayed publicly in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness to the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, Paul is very clear that people must believe in Christ in order to receive the benefits of Christ's saving work on their behalf. They receive that not by doing works of the law, but they receive that by faith alone. And finally, Romans 10. This is uh, such a powerful passage on our subject tonight. Is faith in Christ necessary to be saved? And indeed, this passage just makes it crystal clear that this is the case. Let let me uh, show you, first of all, verses 13 uh, to 15, and then go back and give you a bit more of the context that leads up to this. But these, these verses in verses 13 to 15 are powerful verses. Paul makes the statement in, in verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so here is this general statement. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ, the Lord, here would be the Lord Christ. Look back at verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So the Lord he's referring to here is the Lord Christ. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Christ will be saved. Okay, but now now listen to the logic of verses 14 and 15. But how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not believed? heard and how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent missionaries how just as it's written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things so the logic of verses 13 to 15 is very clear that people must hear the gospel of christ to believe in christ to call upon the name of christ in order to be saved which means people must go How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel message to those who have never heard it before. What a glorious privilege that is to take that message out. With hardship, yes, indeed, in many cases. But privilege, oh, yes, indeed, it is. Now, I want you to see, though, the context that leads up to this. Look back at verse 1 with me. 
of, of Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 1. <clears throat> Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. Huh, who's the them? We're, we're in Romans 10, so what do you think? Who's the them? It's Israel, right? These are the Jewish people. My heart's desire, my earnest prayer for them is for their salvation. So again, Paul does not view Jews out there as saved people, as a class of people. Of course, he's a Jew and he's saved. But what's the difference? He's believed in Christ. He knows of Christ and he has been saved by faith in Christ. So he does not view Jews as a class of people, as saved people. Rather, his heart's desire, his earnest prayer for them is for their salvation. Now look what he says, verse 2. For I testify about them, that is my Jewish brothers and sisters, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now both those statements are interesting. They have a zeal for God. Would Paul deny the authenticity of their piety, the, the zealousness with which they endeavored to worship God and obey his law and carry out what the law required? Would, would, would he for one minute discount the, the zeal that they had for God in, in their religious practices? No, he wouldn't discount that at all. But here's the problem. That zeal, that piety, that display of their longing to please God does not indicate that they have the right knowledge of God. I mean, which is really an amazing thing to say to Jewish people, especially Jewish people like Saul was, right? The Pharisee who was trained under Gamaliel, who knew Torah very, very well. You think, well, doesn't he have knowledge? Obviously, those Jews have knowledge. So what does he mean then in verse 2, but not, not in accordance with knowledge? Well, it has to be knowledge of something specific, right? Not knowledge generally, not knowledge of Torah. What is it they don't know? Well, keep reading and you'll see what it is. So they don't know something, he says. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness. Stop. On the surface, that looks ridiculous. Of course Jews know about God's righteousness. They know his righteous anger at the flood. They know his righteous anger at Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they, they know the righteousness of God revealed uh, in, in, at, the, at the temple and the burning bush and, and at Mount Sinai. Goodness, they know the righteousness of God. But so what does Paul mean when he says not knowing uh, the, 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 uh, about God's righteousness? What must he mean then? They don't know how God's righteousness is brought to them. They think that they can attain, they can earn, they can acquire God's righteousness by their law keeping. That's what they think. So when he says not knowing about God's righteousness, what he means is they don't know the real means by which God's righteousness comes to them. Which, which is coming up in a moment, okay? So verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, isn't that exactly what they're doing? They're trying to establish their own righteousness by, by their works, by keeping the law, by doing all the things that God commands. Look, God, I am righteous before you by what I do. That's what they're trying to do. But of course, they fail in that. Verse 3, he says, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They didn't give themselves to the true means of righteousness. For, verse 4, for Christ is the telos, the end of the law, 
that toward which the law points. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, here it comes, to everyone who believes. So here's his point, my friends, is that people must believe in Christ in order to have God's righteousness imputed to them. So they have his righteousness, not a righteousness of their own, uh, that, that they somehow think they can manufacture, that will never be adequate, never will work. By the works of the law, no one is righteous before God. So how do we, how do we attain righteousness? Not by anything we do, but by faith receiving the righteousness God grants us through Christ. Now, that's the context then of Paul saying, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This applies then to, to zealous, God-fearing Jews who do not yet know Christ. They must hear of Christ in order to be saved. Well, goodness, I would submit to you, if it applies to God-fearing Jews, zealous Jews, wouldn't it apply to Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists who know nothing really of that Old Testament law and the true the revelation that God has given uh, through the Old Testament scriptures? Indeed, it applies to them every bit as much, if not more. So indeed, everyone in the world must hear the gospel of Christ in order to be saved. So again, hear the logic of verses 13 to 15. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But how shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? You hear then the necessity of belief. Belief must be true for people to be saved. But how shall they believe unless they hear, right? They have to hear the gospel to believe. You can't believe something you don't know. You have to hear the gospel to believe in Christ to be saved. But how should they hear unless someone preach? And so, so someone must proclaim the message to them. They must read it and attract. They must hear it on the radio. They must hear it through the message of, of, a, of an evangelist or a missionary who comes to them. But how shall they preach unless they are sent? So indeed, the necessity and the urgency of the mission's mandate. People must go and people must stay to send, right? I mean, they, both of those have to be true. But I, I just, uh, you know, at this point would urge you to consider uh, individually as Christian people and as a community of faith in your church, before God, do we have a clear conscience when it comes to the question, are we committed to the necessity and the urgency of missions? Do we have a clear conscience before God in, in what we are doing? Because I know there's many things to do. There are many, many important aspects of Christian ministry. And I, so not everything can, can get funneled into missions. I understand that. But nonetheless, much must be given to missions because this is the only means by which people can be saved is to hear that message of Christ. And there's much work yet to be done. I mean, it's no surprise that that one-fourth of the world's population that has yet to hear of Christ is the hardest it comprises the hardest areas in the world to penetrate with the gospel. They are the most closed, the most hardened, the most opposed to anything but their own religion, which in most cases, not all, but in most places, cases is radical Islam. So indeed, there is a lot of hard work to do. And, and yet we know from this passage and all these others that people must hear of Christ to be saved. Missions is necessary. 
May God help us to feel the weight of that in a good way, constructive way that would move us to action as God so leads. Now, one other passage I want us to look at before we consider objections that some raise to this is the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Turn there with me if you would, please. Acts chapter 10. This is an interesting thing that when you read uh, Clark Pinnock's book, The Wideness of God's Mercy, which is the main place in which he articulates his inclusivist position, uh, one of his favorite passages to go to to show that there are saved pagans is Acts 10. So one of Clark Pinnock's favorite passages to go to to prove his position is Acts 10. And now one of my favorite passages to go to to, to prove my position, the exclusivist view, is Acts 10. Just, just notice this. This is amazing. So notice how Cornelius is described in the early verses of Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Now look how he's, how he's described. A devout man and one who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. I mean, that is quite a listing, isn't it? A devout man, one who feared God with all of his household. So he had influence as a father over his children and his wife in the home. He was a God-fearing man who, who uh, had influence to have a God-fearing household. Uh, he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Clark Pinnock comments on this verse. Any Christian out there would be thrilled to have this given as the description for him or her. How could you possibly say, given that description, that he is not saved? And yet, he hasn't heard of Christ. I mean, that's what the story is that unfolds, is Peter comes to him and tells him about Christ. So Pinnock's interpretation of this is that clearly Cornelius was saved, but he wasn't yet a Christian. So what happens in Acts 10 when Peter comes is he becomes a saved Christian before he was a saved pagan. Now he becomes a saved Christian. But the fact of the matter is he was already saved, says Pinnock. Let me show you another indicator that Pinnock points to a little later in the chapter. Uh, look with me at, uh, verses, uh, at verse 28. Verse 28. This is uh, Peter now speaking to Cornelius. You remember the, the vision. Do I, maybe I should remind you of the story um, that, that Cornelius had a vision uh, of, of, uh, it, that God spoke to him and told him to have Peter come to him and, and uh, that, he, that he would uh, uh, speak words to him. We'll see, see more on that in a moment. And uh, at the very same time, Peter had a vision uh, in which these... Uh, Unclean foods were put before him, and he said, oh, no, Lord, and, and this happened three times. These unclean foods came down, and, and finally, Peter recognized what the Lord had considered clean, he should no longer consider unclean, and that wasn't food in particular, although it does apply to food as well. Yes, we can have a ham sandwich these days. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, bacon, bacon and eggs, that's all right. Uh, so it does apply to food, but the main point of that illustration was the Gentiles, who the Jews considered as unclean, now God was reaching out to bring into the kingdom as Gentiles, not by being circumcised first. In other words, not by becoming Jews, 
proselyte, proselyte Jews, but as Gentiles coming to faith in Christ and being saved on the same basis Jews are saved, namely by faith in Christ. So Peter gets this. And so here, here we pick up in verse 28. Uh, well, actually, let's go back to verse 26 just so we can see the context here. Uh, speaking about, about uh, Jesus, P Peter raised, uh, let's see, Peter raised him up saying, stand up, I too am just a man. And he talked with him and he entered in uh, and found the people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call a man unholy, any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection, for I was sent for this. Now, Pinnock picks up on that statement in verse 28. I should not call any man unholy or unclean to indicate, see, Cornelius is viewed by Peter as, if he's not unholy, he must be holy. So he's holy and hence saved. He, he views Cornelius as holy. Here's another indicator from Pinnock. Uh, look down at verse 34. This is where Peter now begins preaching to Cornelius. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Pinnock points to that verse and says, see, if you fear God, it doesn't matter what nation you're in. It doesn't matter what religion you're a part of. If you fear God, you're acceptable to God. You're welcome to him. So here are these indicators, says Pinnock, that, that show that Cornelius was already saved even though he wasn't already a Christian, all right? Now, here's the problem with Pinnock's interpretation is that his view that Cornelius, Cornelius was already saved runs contrary to the rest of the storyline of what happens with Cornelius. Pinnock stops at that point. He doesn't really like to talk about what happens next, but my friends, look at what happens next. And you see that, in fact, Cornelius was not yet saved. So here we are at this point in the chapter where Peter is now preaching to Cornelius. And notice in verse 39, verse 39, he says, We are witnesses of these things that, that Jesus did and, and said and, and the miracles that he performed were witnesses of these things that he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on the cross. But God raised him on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all of the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So notice what, what Peter is including in his sermon. It's the death and the resurrection of Christ, this one whom God sent in the world to die for our sins and was raised then the third day. That's the content of his sermon. Now, look at verse 43. Of him, that is of Jesus, Peter says, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, whether or not Peter intended to end his sermon at that point, it ends. Because right at that point, now, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and, his, and the company who is with him. These Gentiles, it's kind of Pentecost too. 
right? Well, Pentecost happened in chapter 2, but this is now the second episode of Pentecost now happening, happening with the Gentiles. The Spirit comes upon them. Uh, clearly, they are saved by this. But notice the very last thing that Peter preached to Cornelius before the Holy Spirit came upon them. Verse 43 again, of him, of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Isn't it implicit in this verse that it indicates Cornelius had not yet been forgiven because he had not yet heard of Jesus or believed in Jesus by which he would be forgiven? I mean, that seems to be the point of the narrative driving forward is now Cornelius for the first time hears of Christ and so can believe in Christ and now is forgiven. Hence, the Holy Spirit comes upon him as he believes at that point. Well, we don't have to surmise from what is implicit in verse 43 because we have an account in the next chapter that explains to us exactly what happened. So look with me now at chapter 11 at uh, verses 13 and following, 13 and following of chapter 11. This is Peter again, back with the boys in Jerusalem. He's gone back to tell him they are just astonished at what has happened, that the Gentiles who were not circumcised nonetheless received the Spirit just as they did. I mean, this was a big deal to realize you didn't have to become a Jew to enter into the family of faith, the family of God. You could be a Gentile uncircumcised you don't adhere to the food laws and so on. You could be a Gentile and be saved. So Peter is explaining this has now happened. They received the Spirit just as we did. So here we are at verse 13. Peter reporting to the other uh, Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And he reported to it. This is uh, Peter now saying what Cornelius told him. He, Cornelius, reported to us, Peter and company, how he, Cornelius, had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you, look carefully, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. You see it? So what is it that Cornelius was told by the Spirit who, who brought this vision to him? That someone needs to come to you. Goodness, it's Romans 10 all over again, right? How shall they believe unless they hear. How shall they hear unless someone preach? So someone will come to you and bring a proclamation to you by which you will be saved. In other words, he wasn't saved before. Then keep reading. There are other indicators in the verses that follow. Uh, he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Verse 15, and as they began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them, that is the Gentiles, the same gift that he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus. You see it? So here is another indication that is only implicit back in chapter 10 that they, upon hearing the message of Christ, they believed in Christ. That's implicit, but now we know explicitly from chapter 11 that when they heard the message of Christ, they believed in Christ and were saved by that. So let me keep reading. Verse 17, therefore, if he gave the same gift to them as he gave, 
uh, as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So it is clear, my friends, that Cornelius was not saved until Peter came and preached the message of the gospel to him. When he heard that message, he believed in Christ, he was forgiven of his sins, and he was saved. Now look also at chapter 15 real quickly, because this comes up also at the Jerusalem Council. Also at the Jerusalem Council, Peter reports on what happened with the Gentile conversion. Here in verses 7 to 9. After there had been much debate, this is Acts 15, verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So there, there you have that connection. Again, they hear the word of the gospel, then they are able to believe. Keep reading, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. There it is again. In other words, that's just another way of saying saved by faith, forgiven of their sins by faith, cleansed in their hearts, cleansed of their sin by faith in Christ. So go back again to chapter 10, uh, verse, verse 2. And look with me afresh at this description of Cornelius. I mean, when you see this now, realizing this man was not yet saved, it is a remarkable thing. Verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Cornelius is described as a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. Here's my conclusion. This is how pious you can be, how religious and devoted and committed to your understanding of religion that you can be. You can give your life to it. You can be a devoted adherent of a religion out there with great zeal and passion and not be saved because the means by which we are saved is not through piety or devotion to religious standards, or keeping the law, or anything else, the, one, the only means by which we are saved is faith in Christ. So people must hear the gospel in order to be saved. Cornelius, regardless of how pious he was, had to hear the gospel in order to be saved. Now, if there's any connection between Cornelius's piety and his salvation, it is this that it looks like this man was being drawn by the Spirit so that his piety was an evidence that God was at work in his heart. But he would not be saved until Peter came with the gospel message. So is God, will there be anyone on the day of judgment? Will there be anyone on the day of judgment who can say to God, I was earnestly seeking you and you did not bring to me the gospel? And the answer is no one. This is an example. What, so God raises up Peter to go to Cornelius to bring the gospel to this man who fears God. 
You see it? So if there is a genuine piety, the Spirit is at work in this man, and God will bring to that person the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will not fail because they must hear of Christ and believe in Christ to be saved. Well, let's take a look at some objections that are sometimes raised against the exclusivist view that people must, must uh, know of Christ and believe in Christ in order to be saved. Uh, the first objection is from Old Testament believers. Some argue that since uh, Abraham and Moses and, and David didn't know of Christ, and, and yet they were saved, that it could be the same thing for people now, uh, pe people who are geographically separated from Christ, uh, is comparable to people who were chronologically separated from Christ. Abraham and Moses and David were chronologically prior to Christ, did not know of Christ, and yet they could be saved without knowledge of Christ and belief in Christ to be saved. Well, likewise, people who are geographically separated from Christ, uh, they're, they're in other lands where they don't have the gospel, they could be saved. Well, it makes for a nice argument, but the problem is the Bible does not attest to this. The whole reason that the gospel is to go to the nations is very simple. They have to hear the gospel of Christ to be saved. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Hence, Jesus says, go to the nations, make disciples of them, baptizing them, teaching them everything that I commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is predicated on the reality that people who are geographically separate must hear of Christ and be saved. Furthermore, those Old Testament saints, true enough, they didn't have knowledge of Christ who died and rose, but they had knowledge of the promise of the coming of one who would bring salvation. How early was that promise given in the Bible? Genesis 3, 15, in the very context of the curses that God was announcing to the serpent and to the woman and to the man. In Genesis 3, he announces in verse, in verse 15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And there you have the first announcement of the good news that God would overcome what had happened through the sin of Adam. He would overcome that through one who would come, the seed of the woman, one who would come from her, would defeat Satan. So from that point, you have, through the Old Testament, an ever-increasing development of gospel. You might think of, this is an analogy, I think, that works really well. Think of the unfolding of a rose bud. In the bud form, I mean, goodness, I mean, it's just all tightly wrapped up, and you can't see in it at all, right? But then in time, that rose bud begins to open, and you can begin to see little bits of what's inside. It was all there to begin with, but it's not in, in open view. But then finally the day comes when the rose is fully formed, fully unfolded, and you can see all of the elements of that rose, the beauty of, of the intricacy of that rose. Well, the full unfolding of the rose is the same rose as the rose bud, but you know less about it as a bud than you do when it's fully unfolded. So the revelation of God is really the, revela the, the revelation of the gospel in, in the Bible is the revelation of 
an increasing understanding of who this one is who will come and bring an end to Satan and sin. We now know it is Jesus, the son of Mary, uh, who was who's, who's born in Bethlehem. This is the one who has come and defeated this, that defeated Satan and sin. But those Old, those Old Testament saints, based upon the revelation given to them, believed in the one who would come. Even though they didn't know who that one was, they still believed, in a sense, they believed in Christ, even though they didn't know exactly who that one would be until he finally came. Second objection. Some uh, object to uh, this view because of the, the very prevalent conviction of many evangelicals that infants who die in infancy go to heaven. I mentioned Ron Nash this morning. Uh, he, you know, he wrote this wonderful book, Is Jesus the Only Savior?, that I, I commend to you to, to get a copy of and read. It's a very excellent book on these issues that we're looking at. He also wrote a book entitled, When a Baby Dies. And it's really a helpful book pastorally. Uh, it, you know, it, it deals with, uh, with the question that so many uh, parents and friends uh, uh, of those who lose a little one, uh, maybe through a miscarriage or maybe shortly after birth, they lose a little one, what happens? And, and there is a, a, an amazing consensus uh, among at least many evangelicals. John MacArthur, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Al Mohler, Danny Aiken, uh, Ron Nash, myself. I, I haven't talked to Pastor Bill, so I won't include you on this because uh, uh, I, I don't want to presume anything. But th th there's a number, anyway, of, of leading evangelicals who have the view that infants who die in infancy go to heaven. And it's not, uh, not because they're innocent, but because God, God saves them. But the reason that they're not condemned, as we are condemned if we don't believe in Christ, is because they have not yet understood and rejected the God who reveals themselves to them, by, by which then they are culpable before him and deserving condemnation. For example, in Romans 1, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, so God gave them over and, and brought, brought them to judgment. Well, this is a conscious knowledge of something you reject. That's not true of infants. Uh, on the day of judgment, the books of works are open and people are judged according to their works. Well, infants have done no works of unrighteousness. They, they, so in any case, there is this prevailing view that's quite common among conservative evangelicals that babies who die in infancy go to heaven. And the same thing could be said of, <clears throat> of uh, mentally impaired at a very low level. I mean, God knows, I don't know, but you know, at a certain level when you're not able to think in moral categories and the like. Okay, well, the, the objection comes then, how can you believe that infants who die in infancy go to heaven and they haven't believed in Christ, but other people you say they must believe in Christ and, or, or, or they cannot be saved? And the answer is simply this. It's a category confusion to think that what applies to one would be the same with the other. I mean, infants, granted, don't believe in Christ, but they can't believe in Christ. This is part of the reason that they are not culpable before God for their, for, for their sin natures because they haven't been morally awakened, as it were, to respond in any way. So there is no capacity for infants to believe in Christ or not. Whereas for you and me, oh yes, there's a capacity. And, and, and hence we are responsible before God we are uh, 
we own our own sin and condemnation before him. And so our only hope is to believe in Christ and be saved. So this is not, uh, this is not a contradiction. It's apples and oranges. These are two different categories, and you shouldn't apply the standards of one to the other. Third objection, objection from pious non-Christians. Well, this was John Hick. If you were here in the Sunday school hour this morning, I mentioned that here was this man who grew up in an evangelical home, was a vibrant witness for Christ during his university days. I mean, it's just a, re a remarkable, tragic story. And then he completely gave up uh, the, the Christian faith for, for it and was, was the leading intellectual uh, advocate for pluralism at, in the second half of the 20th century. And uh, what led John Hick to this position was his observation of the piety of uh, adherence to other religions that equaled, if not surpassed, the piety that he saw among Christians. And so he concluded from that, they must be saved as well, even though they're saved by a different pathway than through Christ. Uh, and and uh, the, the problem with that, of course, is what we've seen in these texts. Remember in Romans 10, I testify about them, Romans 10 verse 2, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. So can you have a true zeal for God and not be saved? Romans 10 verses 1 and 2 uh, declares that is the case. And in Acts 10 with Cornelius, I mean, it is amazing how he is described, this devout man and so on, and yet he is not saved. So piety is not necessarily an indicator of true saving faith. What is an indicator of true saving faith, true, true salvation is, are you trusting in Christ alone? His death, his resurrection, what he did for you, what he did in your place, what he did as a substitute for you. Are you trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and your only hope for eternal life? That's the basis by which we are saved. And then finally, an objection from the love of God and the justice of God. And the argument goes something like this. How could God be loving to set things up in such a way that vast numbers of people are without hope until we come and bring the gospel message to them? How could that be loving for God to do that? And how could it be just for God to hold them accountable when they never had an opportunity? So it's two, kind of two sides to the same question. Let me give you just a quick, quick response to this. Do you know, my friends, that the love of God in the Bible is a love that is marked most intensely, that the, the deepest expression of that love is a love that he has for his elect, for his own. And so there is no compromise in the love of God for him not to love others by bringing salvation, the message of the gospel to them, if he has not chosen them to be saved. You know, I, you know if this strikes you as a hard teaching, uh, let, let me just assure you it's been hard for me as well. As I think back years ago, this was, this was a difficult thing for me to accept from Scripture simply because my moral training was largely from the culture that I lived in. My intuitions were shaped by the culture. And I, th I thought, partiality with God? How could that be? But goodness, my friends, listen to the passages. For example, Jacob have I loved, 
Esau have I hated? And, and you look at the context of this and say, is this because of some, some relative difference of moral virtue in Jacob and Esau? God, God would like to love Esau just as much, but Esau was resistant? Is that what this is about? Oh, no. Just leading right up to that, we read in Romans 9, before the two were born, before either had done anything good or bad, that the choice of God according to his purpose might stand. Uh, that, that, uh, he said to her, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So indeed, this is the choice of God. So if you ask the question, has God failed to love any of his elect in a way that would bring them to salvation? The answer is absolutely no. He will bring every one of those whom he has loved in that way. Now, does he love everyone in another way? Yes, indeed he does. There's a sense in which the love of God is manifest universally and impartially. He sends rain upon the just and the unjust. His love is manifest in many kindnesses, but his saving love is directed to his own. Hence, no compromise of his love is seen if he does not bring someone the gospel of Christ if they are not one of his elect. What about the justice of God? Is, is God obligated to bring the gospel to anybody? Do they need a chance to hear the gospel before they're condemned? My friends, we've got to be very careful here. If it is the case that until people hear the gospel and reject the gospel, they're innocent, then the best evangelistic strategy out there would be what? Stay home and shut up. Don't speak anything to anybody about the gospel of Christ to make them culpable. But of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. It, do, it doesn't teach that people are guilty when they hear of Christ and reject. When they hear of Christ and reject, it only compounds the guilt they already have. They stand before God, every one of us, uh, past this age of accountability, you know, the, we've talked about with the infants, at a certain point when we're morally aware of who God is and our responsibility to him, we all stand before God as guilty sinners deserving condemnation, whether we hear the gospel or not. Is God obligated in his justice to bring that to us, to, to bring the gospel to any of us? And the answer is no, he is obligated by his justice for our sin to be accounted for. And that sin is either accounted for through Christ or we pay for it ourselves. In either of those ways, the justice of God is fully satisfied. So the, the, this objection from the love of God and the justice of God, in, in uh, summary, is, is an objection that fails to understand rightly what the love of God really is and what the justice of God really is and sees those two categories of love and justice in the ways that our culture understands them rather than the way the Bible understands them to be. So to think biblically about them is the means of answering those objections. Well, in conclusion, uh, what one uh, thing just to bring back to our attention as we draw this to a close. If it is true, my friends, that people must hear of Christ and believe in Christ to be saved, then this is one of the most sobering truths that we have to deal with as Christian people. 
We, we, just, we just don't have the luxury, honestly, we don't have the luxury of putting, putting this on the back burner and forgetting about it. Because the destiny of people out there depends upon whether or not they hear that gospel of Christ. And if you say, well, wait a minute, you're a Calvinist, aren't you? You believe that God has elected people, and of course he's going to save them because he's elected them. Well, that's true. He is going to save them, but how is he going to do it? He will do it through and not apart from the preaching of the gospel. So notice Romans 10 follows Romans 9. Ah, you think, wow, that's profound. I I think I already knew that. Romans 10 comes after Romans 9, right? But in Romans 9, what is Paul speaking mostly about? The sovereignty of God in salvation. That's the passage, that's the chapter that has Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, and uh, uh, the, the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Chapter 10, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How should they call upon whom they have not believed? How should they believe unless they hear? And so on. So, so in other words, Paul does not see any conflict between a strong view of divine sovereignty and the necessity, the necessity of evangelism. There is no conflict. They go together that the God who sovereignly elects has also sovereignly ordained the means of bringing the elect to salvation through and not apart from the presentation of the gospel of Christ. This is why, look look, uh, sometime at 2 Timothy, I need to make sure I get the right verse here, 2.10, I believe it is. Let me just check very quickly here. Yes, 2 Timothy 2.10, where Paul says, concerning his own life of suffering and affliction, hardship as a missionary, he's reflecting upon the, the agony that he has faced as a missionary. He says this, For this reason I endure all things, all this suffering, all all this affliction. I endure all these things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So here is Paul, who has a high view of divine sovereignty, who also believes that what he is doing is necessary. He endures these difficulties so that the elect may hear and be saved. Apart from their hearing the gospel, they cannot be saved. So, uh, goodness, let's commit ourselves afresh, uh, brothers and sisters, to the great commission of Christ, to be a people who are going or sending. We have to be in one of those categories. There's no such thing as a faithful Christian who is not a goer or a sender. We have to be in one of those two categories. We have to be about the mission's mandate because people must hear the gospel. And only when they hear the gospel and believe in Christ are they saved. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this evening to consider with the tremendous sobriety uh, the fact that your Bible, that the scriptures teach that people apart from the knowledge of Christ and belief in Christ are without hope. But when the gospel comes, then they have opportunity to, to believe in Christ. And all whom you have chosen will come. We're so grateful for that, Lord. Thank you for uh, the, the, the glory of the fact the gospel is true. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And grant us, Lord, hearts that long to see that gospel spread yet further. 
that the rest of the world that hasn't yet heard may hear the good news, the only good news there is of salvation through Christ. We pray this in his great and glorious name. Amen.